Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Michael Ruscio. He is an amazing digestive, autoimmune, and thyroid disorder expert. He consults out of his Bay Area clinic and reaches an international audience through his highly rated functional medicine podcast and website. You can go to drrusho.com. That's D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. His latest book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, you can find on Amazon, Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, we, I just laughed a little bit with Dr. Ruscio because uh, we were both at Paleo FX. In fact, he spoke right before me. And I, I never introduced, we never spoke or I never introduced myself. I can't <laughs> believe I even missed that, missed that whole thing. So that's pretty funny. Um, but I really like the work that you're doing and I'd love to get into this healthy gut, healthy you. If there's anything anyone out there uh, can start to do for themselves, it's to get this gut in line. So obviously of all the topics you could speak about as a doctor, you're right. You you chose this one, so let's get into it. Yeah, I mean the the reason why I've progressively become more focused into digestive health is because out of out of all the different interventions, the ones that were targeted at the gut most consistently produced results and produced the most profound results for a, a patient's symptoms. And I think one of the important connections to establish right out of the gate here for the listener is that the improvements are not consolidated to digestive symptoms, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation. It's becoming increasingly recognized, even in the, in the conventional published medical literature, that you can have breakouts on your skin, fatigue, brain fog, uh, even, even non-responsive um, thyroid that, that um, it's, it's challenging to find a stable TSH dose or a, a stable TSH level and thyroid dose uh, as a byproduct of a gut problem. Joint pain as, a, as another example. So there's a wide array of symptoms that may boil down to a problem in the gut. And, and that's why it's just fundamentally so important. And I'm definitely excited to expand more on that topic. Yeah. Well, it's really great that you pointed out that it doesn't have to be, quote, gut-related symptoms. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what you think of, right? It doesn't have to be the gas and the bloating. There can be other things that go along with it. One of the things that I had that was horrible, I know a lot of women deal with, I know a lot of people who've been in a hypothyroid state or another kind of disease state for a while where things are not working right, candida, um, nightmare, uh, totally makes you crave sugar. It uh, absolutely mimics brain fog, which then can confuse one on, on where the thyroid situation is at. And I nipped it. I really nailed it and I got it. But it, <laughs> it was brutal. You don't realize, again, how much your brain <laughs> is associated with the gut. And so aside from like physical symptoms too, and we'll get into brain gut connections later, but let's talk about candida because it's a common one a lot of people have. And I'll just mention that a couple of symptoms uh, that I had from it other than like brain fog and wanting to crave sugar and all of that was honestly itchy ears and itchy butt. It's it's kind of if you're out there and you hear that and you're like, ooh, that's me, that's a sign. And that was when I was like, okay, something's not right. Um, so I'd love you to talk a little bit about candida because I think a lot of people have it, don't really know it. And it's something you can kind of clean up naturally on your own a little bit there and get in the right direction without having to go see a doctor. Yeah. And, and fortunately, 
there's a lot that one can do without needing to see a doctor. And, and, and of course, I do think it's a good idea to keep your general practitioner or if you have another specialist you're working with, keep them in the loop. Don't, don't turn a, a blind eye to, nat, um, to conventional medicine just because you're utilizing natural medicine. But fortunately, there's a lot that one can do that doesn't require a prescription or even testing or, or a doctor's guidance, which is nice because it, it makes these things have a lower hurdle uh, or barrier to entry. And then regarding candida, yeah, I think maybe something to, to preface the discussion about candida with is, is the following. And I mentioned this because if it's, it's important not to get too narrow in, in our focus because what people can sometimes end up doing is they can stop listening to their own body because let's, as an example, say someone thinks they have candida and so they go on a low carb diet because they've heard that carbs feed candida and they end up not feeling well but they keep eating that low-carb diet because they've been led to believe that they must eat a low-carb diet because of their quote-unquote candida. But for their digestive system and for their metabolism, they may actually do better on a moderate to higher carbohydrate diet, and it may take someone years to piece that together because they haven't been listening to their body. So we can definitely get into some of the typical symptoms associated with one organism compared to another, although they have a lot of overlap. But I just want to caution the listener to not get too detailed in, in your analysis and think of your gut as an entire ecosystem. And when you do, when you approach it that way, you really, in many cases, end up listening to your body a lot more rather than doing what you think you should do for candida versus SIBO versus H. pylori, what have you. Um, and the symptoms of candida and something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth have so much overlap that they're very difficult to discern just from a symptomatic presentation. But there are a few salient things regarding candida that may be important. Uh, certainly, if someone has skin reactions that tend to wax and wane with carbohydrate intake, that can be one sign if they've been diagnosed with some sort of fungal overgrowth uh, perhaps in the periphery or something like oral thrush, that can be another uh, giveaway. If they notice if they eat too much carbohydrate, they have a worsening of their symptoms. That can be suggestive, but that may also indicate a FODMAP intolerance or something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And, and what I think the, the takeaways regarding candida are is it's one of many different organisms we can organize underneath the broad umbrella of dysbiosis, meaning that there's an imbalance in the life in the gut, in the bacteria, fungus, and other like organisms in the gut that needs to be rectified. And we need to really cultivate a better balance in the entire community. And, and there's a couple interesting nuances. Like we know that people can have small intestinal fungal overgrowth. People may have heard of its, its uh, I guess you could say, cousin or brother-sister, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or, or SIBO, we're now learning that one can have small intestinal fungal overgrowth. It's not able to be assessed in routine clinical practice. Is that CIFO? That's CIFO, yeah, small intestinal fungal <laughs> overgrowth. Um, we can't assess it really in routine clinical practice, but we, we have methods of, of addressing it, even though it's not something that we can necessarily easily test. So there's a couple things on, uh, on fungus broadly. I really like the idea that, well, first of all, there are overlaps and, um, you know, sometimes you need to get a stool 
sample test and get a little bit more investigative. I had a, I'd love to hear, I mean, I mentioned some symptoms of candida. I did hear someone who had severe uh, SIBO who told me later that one of the things they look back on, they were like, oh, was that every time they had a bowel movement, it looked like they said they chewed up salad and spit it out. I said, okay, well, that might, that might be an, one indication of something going on there. So, you know, I just um, also the importance of really looking and assessing your bowels. And if things aren't right, we, we all know what's right. And if you don't go and Google a poop chart and check it out, because that's part of it. I also know that when I was affected at one point, I did have terrible gas and bloating, um, and, and that was it. What are some other symptoms um, that we haven't mentioned already that people uh, might be chronic, that people might go, ooh, maybe I need to look into this? Again, I think using symptoms as a diagnostic tool is, is not a great practice because you can have so many symptoms, everything from brain fog to depression to fatigue to joint pain to insomnia to bloating to reflux be caused by dysbiosis or an imbalance in the gut. But rather what I would offer people is a hierarchy in terms of if you are here, then you should look into your gut health. And what I would offer people specifically there would be if you've improved your diet and your lifestyle and you're still not feeling well, the next thing you should do is investigate your gut health. It's not necessarily the only thing you should do, but it's the next thing that you should do is investigate your gut health because there's a high probability, again, not a guarantee, but a high probability that the cause of your symptoms is being driven by a problem in the gut. Let's get into leaky gut. It sounds so scary. It is. It seems very frightening. But for those out there, and I'm sure you'll give the, the, the medical better explanation than I will, but the way that I look at it is, you know, again, there's permeability in the intestines and basically fecal matter is, you know, toxic waste is getting into the bloodstream. This is another gut issue that a lot of people just sort of unbeknownst to them. So I'd love you to get into that gut issue. Sure. So, I mean, leaky gut... Um, I think we could we could broadly say if someone is experiencing digestive symptoms, there's a, a high probability that there's a degree of leaky gut present. And if they're experiencing other inflammatory symptoms, then there may also be a degree of leaky gut present if they're having like brain fog, fatigue, joint pain, insomnia, or and or any kind of gastrointestinal symptoms. There may be a degree of, of leaky gut present. And to put it simply, if your gut's not happy, it's not going to work well, <laughs> and and you'll you'll have the the what should be selective membrane of your gut malfunctioning. And as this malfunction continues, you, we kind of slide into this self-propagating cycle of inflammation. As as the gut becomes damaged and inflamed, food particles end up getting through the barrier that should not, and that initiates even more of an immune reaction and more inflammation and, and this cycle kind of self-perpetuates. So it's definitely something that's important for people to keep in mind. And some of the therapies for leaky gut here may be a little bit counterintuitive, especially if you're coming from kind of an orthodox paleo background, for example, fruits and vegetables being health, you know, being so healthy for you, which it's not to say that they're not healthy for you, but we do know that some people who go on a paleo diet and don't optimally respond, need to make a modification to their diet known as the low FODMAP diet. And this restricts some seemingly healthy foods, just to name a few, asparagus, broccoli, cauliflower, avocado, all high FODMAP foods, but 
for some people, these foods are problematic because these foods feed bacteria in the intestines. And if they have something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, a diet high in these FODMAPs or these, these foods that feed bacteria can actually make them worse. Now, how this ties back to leaky gut is there's at least one study that has shown a low FODMAP diet can actually reduce leaky gut and inflammation in the gut, as well as help to quell digestive symptoms. So sometimes we're led to believe that we need to be eating lots of fiber to feed our gut bacteria, but for some people that's actually not the case, and they may do well to do something that's almost the opposite of that. Um, and leaky gut would be one of the intermediaries that would improve as they made a change, in this case a dietary change, that improved how they're feeling symptomatically. So is that <clears throat> just low fiber, low FODMAP, or is that just lowering carbs in, in, in general for that situation? So a low FODMAP diet, it's interesting because it has to do with the essentially the, the molecular structure of the, the, the carbohydrate itself. So it doesn't have to be a low-carb diet. It doesn't have to be a low-fiber diet. It just has to specifically be a low FODMAP diet, and I know that's not very helpful for the user in terms of saying, well, well, what specifically does that mean that I do? All you need is a low FODMAP handout and follow that diet. It's not very difficult, but you will see that there are some fruits and some vegetables, more so vegetables, that are high in FODMAPs, whereas there are other fruits and vegetables that are lower in FODMAPs. So you focus on eating the lower FODMAP foods, and all you need is two to three weeks on this diet, and if you're not markedly improved, then that means the diet's not the right diet for you. And and that's one of the things in Healthy Gut, Healthy You I, I try to lay out for people is let's navigate through some of the dietary modifications we can make, but let's do it at a, at a fairly a fairly expeditious cadence so that people aren't staying on a diet for weeks and months trying to figure out if it should work or if it does work for them or not. If a diet's working for someone, they can usually tell between the two and three week mark. And if it is, they can continue. And if not, they can try a different modification of the diet. But essentially to to figure that out, it's just, it's just a low FODMAP food list. We have one available in our website um, and you can get some online. I will say there's one one point of confusion for people, which is there are different versions on the internet of the low FODMAP diet. There's essentially a paleo low FODMAP diet, which combines the paleo rules with low FODMAP. And then there's a standard low FODMAP, which is just low FODMAP without the combination of the paleo rules. So if you see two different food lists, sometimes people get all frustrated. Oh, which one should I use? Well, you can use either one. The more restrictive one is the paleo plus low FODMAP. There's no grains and no dairy. The standard low FODMAP allows low FODMAP grain and low FODMAP dairy and is less restrictive. And, and that's more so important, especially if someone has really impaired digestive health and they're a bit underweight. We want to be careful not to give them too many restrictions because we could exacerbate that. Interesting. And so... Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we've talked about brain fog and exhaustion, but if you could just explain to everyone to really drive it home, the connection between our brains and our gut and how, you know, because obviously there's connections in the gut to converting thyroid hormones and other diseases. And yes, like you said, it causes inflammation. And if there's inflammation, that can beget more inflammation. So there's a lot of domino effects, right? But if you could touch on that one, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, th this is something that I personally suffered with. And it's one of the most debilitating symptoms 
in my mind, it, brain fog, um, because it makes it difficult to do anything and pretty much everything. And there's definitely a connection between the gut and the brain. I think the best documentation we have illustrating this connection is the fact that we have high-level clinical trials and even summaries of clinical trials known as meta-analyses that have shown that certain probiotics are actually effective against depression and anxiety. So that's very exciting. So it shows you that something that you take that helps heal the gut, a probiotic, can actually help with something that's happening in the brain, depression and anxiety. Now, we also know that people with IBS, this is just a collection of digestive symptoms, gas, abdominal pain, um, bloating, and usually some kind of oscillation in their bowels, either to constipation or diarrhea or both, have been shown to have lower scores of well-being and higher scores of depression. This is just uh, recent contemporary research that's uncovering this. And I think any clinician who works with gut disorders with their patients, whether it's SIBO, candida, leaky gut, optimizing someone's diet, will see that mood and things like brain fog improve after optimizing one's gut. So it's it's a very exciting area because sometimes you can feel like, oh my God, there's something wrong with my brain. And oftentimes the brain's fine. It's just the gut is a source of inflammation. That inflammation leaks its way up to the brain. And if we can get the gut de-inflamed, then everything will de-inflame, including the brain. And then all the subsequent symptoms being driven by that will go away. Yeah, I want to interject a woman's story who I interviewed, Holly Perkins. Anyone can go visit her website. But she was on antidepressants since basically age 11. And she's now in her 40s, and she, all those years, was a fitness uh, celebrity, you know, instructor and all this kind of stuff, and seemingly had the right body, but didn't feel good, and always had these issues with the antidepressants, and again, just labeled as a story, like, well, you're this kid that's brain's not right. And then she found out later she had a horrific reaction to grains and dairy, and the moment she quit it, she was able to wean off her uh, antidepressants with her doctor over the course of, uh, you know, like a year, and is completely free of that. So, you know, something as simple as that, that someone just didn't know and missed. And also someone who was, you know, looking pretty good, right? You know, on the outside. Um, I'd love to get into some of the success stories that you've had or you've seen, you know, like we said earlier, like sometimes it's just simple, right? It starts here with the gut. Sometimes that's all you need to clean up something. So I love those stories where, wow, the simplest answer was the thing that did the 180, you know, even though it's always a collective of things. But I would just love to hear some of those success stories with gut healing. Sure. I mean, we, in the first chapter of my book, I think we outline maybe six case studies and they're all unique in their own way, but they share the commonality of, we identified some type of problem in the gut, and that led to this wide array of improvements. One in particular that we discussed in the book was Jen. And Jen, she she came in after being referred in from another doctor in town who said she was too smart and he didn't know what to do for her because she had read everything and she knew everything. She was, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he said to me, Ben, she is just too smart. I don't know what to, know, know what to do for her. She was already doing low carb, uh, pretty much keto and had, had improved from that. And she was intermittent fasting and she was eating all grass fed and um, all organic using probiotics and supplementing vitamin D and and had had her thyroid checked and everything there was normal, yet she still had her chief complaint of weight gain. 
And this wasn't kind of the, the last five pounds that would be more so for optimum appearance. This was more like 50, 60, 70 pounds of weight gain over the past couple of years. And I also want to be careful in saying that improving one's gut health, and I don't want to position it as a weight loss panacea, but you certainly do see some cases where the weight loss is fairly marked, you know, 20 pounds plus. And in Jen's case, we identified that she had a fungal overgrowth, candida, via a stool test. And it was also likely that her case was was stubborn and hard to clear because the candida was protected by this almost like a fence known as a biofilm. And so we had to actually treat her numerous times to finally clear this fungal or candidal overgrowth. But over the course of about a year, not changing her diet, not changing her exercise, both of which were fairly well dialed in, she lost about 60 pounds. And she was also sleeping better wow. and had better skin. Now, now that's probably the most remarkable weight loss that I've seen. It's It's more common that you'll see... I would attribute maybe 15 to 25 pounds, again, it depends on the individual, of weight loss in anywhere from 30 to 50% of cases that have a, a problem in the gut. So that's that's not a bad odd um, or bad odds. The, the other nice thing is that you'll oftentimes see other symptoms improve along with this. And, and just as one other example, I believe also this case study was in the book, Laura had come in and she was on a very – high vegetable diet, what many people would think to be very healthy, almost a vegetarian type diet, but but not a, <laughs> as it's sometimes labeled, not a crapitarian diet. This is a healthy vegetarian diet where she wasn't just eating a bunch of processed foods and, and processed right, grains. Cheese sandwiches and yeah. Right. Um, and she had a little bit of resistant weight loss. She, I believe she was also complaining of insomnia, fatigue, and depressed mood. And she was hypothyroid, Hashimoto's, already on medication, and she was just on a T4 medication. She was on, I believe it was levothyroxine. And after improving her gut health, and I believe she had bacterial overgrowth and potentially blastocystis hominins or, or another like organism in the gut, but typical imbalances that can be easily treated with a, a simple herbal protocol, also that we lay out in the book, she lost... 10 to 15 pounds, and she was about 5'2", so 10 to 15 pounds on, on That's someone. That's my height. It's a yeah, lot. It's a lot, of, yeah. it's a lot of weight on someone uh, of, of that height. And she was sleeping better, had better energy, and she was able to cut her thyroid medication dose in half. And this is likely because, and I don't feel like this, this gets enough press, when people have malabsorption, they malabsorb their thyroid hormone. So they end up needing more thyroid hormone because they're not absorbing all the thyroid hormone that they're swallowing. So in her case, she felt better, she lost weight, and she was on half the dose of thyroid medication because she was absorbing it better. So she was absolutely thrilled. Um, and you know, we can go. And I want to, I want to inter- yeah, oh, I want to highlight that because you know one of the things that you know I've talked about a lot too, and I, I'm really glad you pointed that out is. Also, often, when people over time get really dialed in, they clean out their diet, they get calorically efficient as they go down this ancestral path, you often then will need less medication, particularly because, um, and I mean, no one's, again, talked really about this, I probably should trademark it, no, but T3 efficiency, you really kind of get a level of T3 efficiency going on where you need less. And also, too, it's one of the reasons with the gut health why, well, 
whether hypo started the gut health or the gut health it chicken and egg doesn't matter. It's that hypo patients, as you know, are often low in so many different nutrients because again, the malabsorption. So that just goes right in line with what you're saying. Often you need less. And same goes for people who've gone down a road, um, of systemic enzymes and have cleaned that up. Often people have noticed that they're able to reduce all sorts of medications that way. So again, you know, this attention to cleaning up the gut, whether you're sick or not, and you're out there to prevent oneself from going down that road, you might as well clean it up and get it together now, even if you're feeling pretty healthy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a fantastic point. And to piggyback on that and, and build on that, there was a study performed within the past year or two looking at 1,809 patients, and all of these patients had SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and the researchers were trying to determine what the most commonly associated factors with SIBO were. They looked at things including immunosuppressive drug use, acid-lowering medication use, prior intestinal surgery, and other factors. Surprisingly, what they found was that hypothyroidism and or being on thyroid medication were the two most associated factors with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, that does not mean, because we had a lot of people ask us this question, this does not mean that if you're on thyroid medication, that causes SIBO. I want to be very clear in drawing that distinction. Right. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go out and stop taking your medication. But what what it likely means is that there's some commonality which underlies both small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and uh, hypothyroidism. And you know there, there's speculation there, but and without, and without getting into that, you know those weeds. Essentially, what I'm trying to illustrate is there's definitely a link between thyroid health and someone's gut, and it's it's not just this, you know, biological diagram we could we could draw from from textbook knowledge of what we're seeing clinically relevant associations being documented, and and so if if someone's struggling with thyroid definitely make sure that you don't overlook the health of your gut. And kind of coming back to our hierarchy from earlier, if you've taken steps to improve your diet and your lifestyle and you're still not feeling well, I'd make your first stop after that optimizing your gut health. Yeah, this this whole topic of the only thing that you can control is mouth to anus as an adult, right? And that is your responsibility and nothing a doctor can do for you. And um, I say it over and over again when I'm interviewed, which is you can give a patient all the thyroid hormones you want. Are they being metabolized and getting into the cells and actually affecting your life? And there's a lot of things that get in the way of that, you know, and then things that get in the way of that cause other things. <laughs> so then you're down a whole rabbit hole. So it really does, you know, it's, it's, it starts with the gut. It kind of ends with it. Um, it's the, the important part that can't be looked over. Um, cause again, you could be ingesting these thyroid hormones. And then if you're still living in this world and have these gut problems, um, and I've seen people, um, yeah, they just go hand in hand. For most of the people I talk to with the SIBO situation, they are dealing with a Hashimoto's or a thyroid issue concurrently. So yeah, everybody needs to get on it. What are some other things that we wouldn't think of um, that might be related to gut health? Well, I, I think um, one, of the, one of the biggest things that we already covered, but just to relist this, would, would be the, the low FODMAP diet, that's something that I think eludes some people in the paleo community, although it's getting more press. Um, the other thing would be to come at this from the other end of the spectrum, not to be overly restrictive with your diet. We want to be eating healthy, yes. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, I see more patients than I'd like to admit who have really worked themselves into a frenzy 
with dietary restrictions. And I think like many other things, dietary restrictions follow the law of diminishing returns, meaning you get a lot of improvement from the initial investment of improving your diet. But if you go too far and you become too restrictive and too worked up about it, and you start not hanging out with your friends because you're afraid to go out to a restaurant because you don't know what will be, will be in the sauce or because you don't you know you need to have such tight control over your diet there's a small group of people who are that sensitive who have to be that careful yes but for the vast majority of people you can take a little bit of liberty and why that's important is because if you start impeding on your fun your social life and if you start creating stress in your life from fear of food, that in and of itself is a, a direct and fairly profound impediment to healing. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because, you know, we always stress the primal blueprint and Mark Sisson's been talking about it for years, which is getting to the point, the goal is to get to the point really where you are intuitive, where everything's working to a point where you can become intuitive with the stuff and to stop counting the macros. And, you know, yeah, at first, if you don't know anything about carbs or yeah, look up what a bunch of asparagus is, because you probably don't know. And then you just kind of get an idea over time. And if you can eat intuitively, and like you said earlier, I think this is a really important point. If any kind of dietary change isn't, you're not seeing any kind of results or improvement after six weeks, yeah, don't keep going down that direction. It won't just magically work. There might be other things to look at. Um, so I'm just really glad you mentioned that. Now, if things aren't intuitive and you're like, yeah, but I'm hungry all the time. So when you say eat when I'm hungry and only eat when I'm hungry, um, yeah, if if you're craving food all the time, then yeah, there might be a, a, a brain, serotonin, gut issue, thyroid issue. Um, you know, I just think that it's important I always make the joke like, you know, cavemen weren't, you know, chiseling macros into the side of the <laughs> side of the right. wall. And, you know, sometimes because I've been in this too, where you're confused, you're like, well, you don't need to eat the color of the rainbow in every single time you put something in your mouth. Sometimes you can just have half, half an avocado. Sometimes you can just have protein by itself and not add anything to it. And so that's where I think it comes in when you're like trying to fit all this stuff in. And it's like, if you can just think about it in a way where become more intuitive, right? Does that, you know, I know you know what I'm talking about. It's just like, that's yeah. the message you're bringing. Yeah. And also, you know, underneath that, that, um, you know, idea of intuitive eating, <clears throat> excuse me, to actually test your boundaries. Because what happens as we become healthier is we're typically able to tolerate foods we were not otherwise able to tolerate previously. Mm, now, good point. that doesn't mean you should start eating bad food all the time. But what I like people to be able to do is uh, let's say you haven't had dairy in years because you you had a problem with dairy and you went paleo and you felt a lot better. But you've never tested that boundary. You might be able to enjoy an ice cream or you know whatever it is every once in a while and not have to – Cut that out of your diet. And I think gluten is another area where – well, I shouldn't say I think. I, what the evidence appears to show, at least the best evidence to date, is that no, not not everyone has a problem with gluten. And, and not even everyone with a thyroid problem has a problem with gluten. And I know that's a little bit of a controversial statement. But what I'm driving at with that is if someone on occasion can have a slice of pizza and not suffer any ill effects – I want them to be able to do that. Do sure. I want them to start having pizza every night? No, <laughs> right? But if it's a group of their buddies or girlfriends and there's a thing that they do, maybe they watch some show every, you know, every third Tuesday and they have wine and pizza and that's the girl's thing and it's, there's this valuable social time 
that occurs in it and you want to be able to partake, I at least want people to test their boundaries so that they can identify, yeah, I tried the piece of pizza and I was floored. I'm not going to do it again. Okay, fine. Yeah. Or some people have a different narrative. I, yeah, you know what? I was a little bit bloaty for about 30 minutes. wasn't that bad. I felt okay. Or some people may even say, yeah, I, I had the pizza and I was totally fine. I just, you know, that that's kind of how I, I want to position this for people just so they, they can have a little bit of fun, right? Because we're working so hard to be healthy so we can be a little bit resilient so we can have some fun sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I like the, the bank account analogy. You know, you're doing all these deposits into your health bank account. You got to take a withdrawal every once in a while too. Yeah. And if you do a pizza withdrawal, um, I'd say go for a Bacino's deep dish pizza from my hometown of downtown Chicago. <laughs> They'll ship it out to you. Nice. It's the best pizza you'll ever have in your life. And I'm a, yeah. And New Yorkers listening, we got you. We got you on this one. I'm not even. It's not even an argument. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that. Um, again, if it's not so discomforting and it's not horrible to your life to have a cheat every once in a while, of course, live your life. You're going to be in France and you might want to croak Monsieur. Eat it. Right. Um, I agree with you. Um, I love that. What other what other kind of messages and things can we expect from reading Healthy Gut, Healthy You? Well, I mean, there, there's certainly, you know, I think this kind of pragmatic and practical tone where we're not trying to make people afraid of food. We're trying to help coach them through determining what their relationship with food will be. And different people will have different relationships. So I like to describe the book as empowering. Um, and I, I think we try to also break things down to help people gain some simplicity. Some books you walk away from those more confused than when you went in. This book, I like to think we're going to help you obtain a certain degree of mastery. And I think probiotics is a good example. People are very confused regarding probiotics. There are, yeah, yeah, let's there are, there are hundreds of products out there. And people may say, boy, you know, I've tried this one, I've tried that one. How do I know when to use one or if it's working or not working or what ones I should try versus I should not try? You can simplify this down and organize probiotics, the vast majority, into three categories. Category one are probiotics that are predominantly lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains. So you look on the label and you'll see maybe anywhere from seven to 15 strains, and they're all lactobacillus something or bifidobacterium something. For, for, you know, the, the vast majority of, of the um, ingredients or the, the strains listed. That's category one. Category two is actually a healthy type of fungus known as Saccharomyces boulardii, and that's what you'll see on, on the label. And then category three are your soil-based or spore-forming probiotics, and these typically contain... Um, the, Different bacillus species, bacillus subtilis, bacillus coagulans, bacillus lichenformis. And th there's a fourth category, but you can't buy it in the United States. It's actually a form of E. coli, so it's not really so much relevant for the, for the conversation. But <laughs> no, you can only shoot that into your face here. You can't. <laughs> yeah. you can't uh, but actually, it. you know, E. coli, all, all kidding aside, is one of the major commensals in the gut, and there are many healthy types of E. coli. Um, but for the three categories, you can organize almost any probiotic product into either category one, category two, or category three. And so what this can help you achieve is, okay, I tried a category three, a soil-based probiotic, and I did really well with it. Great. You don't have to keep trying different iterations of the same thing, right? Different products that are all giving you the same thing. You can have one formula, keep that in your repertoire, and you're done. 
conversely, you may have had a bad reaction to a probiotic and felt a little bit bloated by it. If you know what category it was, you won't make the mistake of having that same category again. And we lay out some guidelines for doing some simple experimentation with probiotics. But when you organize the probiotics into that category system, it's very easy to navigate this landscape of so many different probiotic product options that currently exist. Let me ask you this. Is there a theme of not to blame one category, but have you seen a theme of one category being more disruptive to people than others as more of the sensitive one? You know, I, I haven't. There, there was speculation. I think most of that speculation came from the paleo community that your lactobacillus bifidobacterium strains were, were the most detrimental or, or prone to, to be detrimental. But I, I have not found that to be the case. Um, in, in fact, I think that may have emanated from a well-intentioned but a little bit paleo-biased position where the, the soil base of the spore-forming probiotics may have the, the most ancestral plausibility to them. But I found it's, it's very unique. Some people react negatively to soil-based or spore-forming probiotics. Some people react negatively to lactobacillus bifidobacterium blend probiotics. Some What's the soil-based or what would that say on the bottle? I don't know that I even knew that. that I mean, I'm not saying I didn't know it came from soil. I just haven't seen it or maybe I haven't recognized it on a label. Will it say soil-based? Um, well, one of the more popular soil-based probiotics is one known as prescriptocyst. Um, but they recently changed their formula, and, and many people are not happy with that formulation change. And we actually did a whole podcast episode all about soil-based probiotics where we talked about what the clinical research shows and, and what some recommended products are. Um, Should I just go eat some dirt? Or? Well, <laughs> there may be some problems with eating <laughs> dirt, but but the, these are um, – these are so the soil-based probiotics – on the label to your question, you'll get all different types of names. Um, one is called uh, Just Thrive. That's a good probiotic. Megaspore is another good probiotic. Formerly Prescriptocyst. You have, um, I think it's ProBio4R. We use one just that's called Soil-Based Probiotic because we, we in the line that we put together, we just chose to name these things simply so people wouldn't get confused. Um, but you'll, you'll, you'll probably not often get something – along the lines of soil in the name of the probiotic. But if you just look on the back, look on the label, you'll see bacillus and you'll see different types of bacillus on there. But uh, these these are organisms that uh, hang out in the soil and then once they're swallowed, they take up residence, uh, at least in part, in the gut. So uh, the, the theory, and there's plausibility to this theory, is that because we're so distant from the dirt now, these would be the most important probiotic. There's been about 14 clinical trials with these types of probiotics, mostly showing benefit. But there have been, I think, 80 to 90 studies with the lactobacillus bifidobacterium type probiotics, mostly showing benefit also. So, you know, we want to be open to both here and, and just have people do a little bit of experimentation to see what works best for them and carry that forward. And, and if you have a reaction, then that may not be the best fit for your unique gut ecosystem. That being said, though, the caveat being if you've never started a course of probiotics and you have major gut issues, you can experience some weird symptoms the first week. I did. So, right, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a full rejection um, of that actual type. Am I right on that? Yep. Excellent point, yes. I tell people, and we also detail this in the book, a few days of turbulence, maybe three to five not abnormal. If you're getting to a week and beyond and you're still having some kind of negative reaction, then it may not be this adjustment reaction that you're alluding to that that definitely can happen. If it's And just like you said, if it goes beyond a week, then it may indicate that that just does not sit well 
with your system. Right. Tell us, other than you know, going to your website, and we'll put all of the ways to connect with you on social media and on your site in the show notes, but tell us, how do you work with people? Do you only see people in person? Can someone remote work with you to help heal? Let us know how we can benefit from your expertise. Sure. Well, we, we do see uh, patients via a telemedicine model and also physically at my office, which is just outside of San Francisco in, in Northern California. And really the, the best resource I could point people to is, is Healthy Gut, Healthy You, my book, because essentially exactly what I do with patients is codified into that book. And it, and it takes you on a step-by-step journey where we evaluate how you're doing at the end of each step and then custom build the protocol for you. And it's, you don't have to be an expert to go through this. It's, it's meant for beginners. Everything is simplified and written in very plain language, but the protocol is adaptable to the individual. So that's really the best thing I could offer. Um, you know, we're happy to help anyone via the clinical practice who, who needs the help also. And then there's, of course, my website with our, our, our articles and our videos and, and everything else. And then if there's any clinicians listening through our website, you can also access our monthly clinical newsletter, which is essentially an assortment of case studies and clinical trials that we summarize and that we publish as part of this monthly tool to help practitioners sharpen their skills. That's amazing. Providing the support on all levels. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Ruscio, for joining us. Um, and again, you can go to drruscio.com. That's D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. So, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she so she loves those sort of, we love them as well. We have uh we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um the avocado oil we use all the time. And and so, you know, that's completely genuine and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the arse out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.